Hey, good morning. Good to be with you again. As was mentioned, my name is Daniel, and I am an Immerse intern. So you know that program that David's in, where he works part-time and then studies part-time, but then ends up working more and then studying less? I do the same thing. And so uh, all of you guys are spending the time relaxing kind of over the Christmas holidays. David and I are going to be gearing up to try and write some papers and spend a lot of time studying. Uh, but we love it. And we're kind of nerds that way. We just love reading and writing. So uh, pray for us as we go into a time of uh, intense work over the Christmas holidays. But it's a real pleasure to be invited back to be here at Tri-City. My dad grew up in the Tri-City areas. And so uh, for our family, this is a real uh, a great area, kind of a, a sentimental area for me. And it's nice that Matt would invite me back. I always kind of have different names for him. I call him Matty G when he's in in around Abbotsford. Uh, last time in the summer, I called him Matty Ice, and I just thought, Matty Christmas this time, right? So, uh, but it's good to be back with you guys. We're going to be studying a passage in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, would you open to Matthew chapter 2? Now, by show of hands, uh, who has already seen the newest Star Wars movie? Okay, not bad. By show of hands, um, who enjoyed the newest Star Wars movie? Okay, not bad. By show of hands, who enjoyed Star Wars Episode Eight, the one right before? Oh, my, bu- my brother at the back. Okay, we'll be praying for you after that one. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Uh, listen, this is a, a time of the year that a lot of people around Christmas time are excited about the Christmas season, right? Advent, they, they, everyone is like longing for Christ to come or longing to celebrate the birth of Christ. But then uh, that's, that's me. But there's another section of us who like behind the scenes also are longing and waiting for the new Star Wars movies to come out. Now in preparation for this movie, um, I'm, I'm a newlywed. I got married on November 1st. In preparation for this movie, I sat my wife Elise down. I said, honey, honey, we need to watch eight movies in a month. Can you do it? And she said, I have no choice. So we, uh, we started watching all the Star Wars movies. Now, uh, we, didn't w- we, we watched it the proper way. We watched it in the proper order. Do you know what I'm saying? Right? We watched it one, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I know a lot of you, maybe in 1977, you saw it and you're like, that was the original Star Wars. I believe it's that way. And like, no, you're wrong. It's actually one, two, three. Because the first three movies serve as a background story to the next three movies and then the next three movies. How are you supposed to understand the middle story if you don't know what the background is? So I told my wife at least this and we slowly worked through them all until we went and saw episode nine. Now, the reason I tell you about that is because the, the passage we're looking at today, the passage in Matthew chapter 2, uh, this whole story that we've been looking at with the birth of Christ and the coming of, of, of the Christmas story, and now the, Christ has been born, we're just looking at the tail end of it. This, this serves as like a prequel. It serves as like the first three movies, the backstory of what's going to launch us into the rest of Jesus' ministry. Because what you will find in Matthew chapter 3 is now you have a new guy on the scene, John the Baptist, who then says, here is Jesus Christ. And it kind of launches us now into adult Jesus' ministry. But there's still this backstory that is in the Bible for a reason. One of the things I find interesting about the Bible is the gospel writers, uh, when they're recording the gospels, when they're writing the gospels, they're not just writing up things that come to their head. 
And they're not just sitting there in a circle trying to remember everything that they, uh, that they can about Jesus. There is some of that where they're writing things they do remember, but what they're writing down is things that they want you to know. And what I mean by that is in the gospels, they're actually uh, crafting a story based on what they want you to know, what they want you to understand. So every different gospel has a different emphasis. And if you guys have been studying, the gospel of Matthew emphasizes the kingship. It emphasizes the fact that Jesus is this Messiah king who has come. And so this is the backstory that's going to lead us. And every, along the way, you'll see that, that uh, Matthew is giving us little snippets, little things to show us uh, that Jesus is the king. So if you turn in your Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to pick up where Matt left off on Christmas Eve. All right, the wise men have come and they've visited uh, baby Jesus. They, they arrived, they gave him the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. They came and worshiped him. They also met with Herod before and they told Herod that they're uh, going to visit this new king. And, and Herod was like, well, let me go worship this new king too, right? Because he, he's not a big fan of this new king on the block. So this brings us to this, this point here, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going to be looking at the story. So what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through the story. There's three sections of the story. And you'll know it's a section because at the end of each section, it says, and this was spoke by what the prophets had written down. This is what the, the prophets had spoke about long ago. Matthew's intentional about showing you that. There's three sections, and then I have two applications at the end. All right? So let's begin with Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that being the wise men, right? They've left Jesus. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. So the scene picks up here, right where uh, it was left off. The wise men now have visited. This is uh, what most scholars would say, that the, and that the wise men didn't arrive right when Jesus was born, that the, the wise men, like these Persian uh, king, they, they were... They were pagan worshipers who would also crown the Persian kings, right? So these guys are really high up in society. They're a big deal. But they saw in the stars, and, and in their pagan way of worship, they realized that when you see things in the stars, something really significant is about to happen. So they go to find it because the stars are showing us that there's this newborn king. So they show up, uh, and they, they, they see the king of Jerusalem, see Herod, and he says, well, welcome here, you guys. Like, big deal coming through town. And so he wants to be very accommodating and welcoming. And he, they say, well, there's a new king that we're going to go worship, that we're going to go see, we're going to go crown. And, and to Herod, he, he puts on a good face. And Herod will say, oh, well, let me know where you find him because I want to worship that king as well. But behind the scenes, that's just not how Herod is. He's actually uh, a tyrannical ruler, as we'll see. And he's enormously paranoid about his ruling coming. So these wise men, they, they leave and but as they're leaving, they are told by God in a dream, right? A vision of an angel comes to them and says, don't go back the way you came. Now, I just want to point out something really interesting here. Uh, two things. First off, this would have been the most miraculous things these pagan worshipers ever would have seen, 
right? You can imagine these guys, they're the spiritual people of, of Persia. They're the ones who like are so wise. They're engaging in magic and doing all these things. But when the angel of God appears to them, that would have been the most magnificent thing that they have ever seen. And so I just like to imagine they see this and, and they are basically like in awe of the person of God. All the things that we've been chasing after, this is the real deal. And so they listen to it because it's shocking when this angel comes to them and says, go the other way. The second thing is uh, we see a lot about dreams here. And what we see in the Bible is that sometimes, not always, God speaks through dreams. And so uh, in my own life and maybe in some of your lives, you've been like, oh, maybe like God has spoken to me through a dream. Uh, sometimes you just know. But other times, if you're like not sure about that, that's something you can chat with your pastor about and get discernment. Go to the elders and say, am I seeing this right? But what we see here is a definite dream. Wise men have this dream, go, leave. The, the, Joseph has this dream and he's just like, I need to leave. He gets in the middle of the night, he picks up his things and, and the languages is that night as if it's just urgent, right? Grabs Mary, we have to go. And so they get out of there, they flee to Egypt. And the reason they're fleeing to Egypt is because Herod uh, is going to kill um, the children in the land. So they flee to Egypt. I have a picture here of what the journey might have looked like, right? If you tried to walk from Bethlehem to Cairo today, uh, maybe this wasn't the route they took, it'd take you 147 hours. So put in that perspective, you walk eight hours a day, it's a lot of days, right? That's a long journey. And so just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment where God just told me to do this. I know I have to flee and run away. Um, but the kind of the fear and the unsettlement that would come there, right? How am I gonna provide for my new family, right? I have the Messiah, right, the son of God, and, and he's a little child. I'm trying to protect this child. What happens if there's people who come and attack us on the way? So you can imagine all the things swirling around, but one of the things I love is the provision of God in this instant. And this is just a little bit of a side, but do you notice the wise men bring him gifts at just the perfect time, right? They bring him gold that would actually would get, get them through and sustain them through a time of, of being a refugee. Uh, this idea of fleeing to another country is something that you see constantly and constantly throughout history. I, I did a history degree as my undergrad, and you will always see this, that there are people, anytime there is a, 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 some sort of um, havoc or an event that is a violent event happening in the country, people flee. Right? Think about what happened in the Middle East with ISIS and people fleeing into Europe. You see this throughout history over and over and over again. World War II, people fleeing to North America. Uh, this is a common thing in the ancient world as well. You find this in Egypt. As Egypt was one of the mega, mega superpowers at the time. Something bad would happen. People would flee down to Egypt. And this was so common, by the way, uh, that I found an old ancient Egyptian text I want to read to you. And it's, if you apply it to our day, it's actually kind of funny. So listen to this. Um, there's an ancient Egyptian text. It says, there will be built the wall of the ruler of life, prosperity, health, and the ascetics will not be permitted to come down into Egypt that they might beg for water in the customary manner in order to let there be strength and justice will come in its place while wrongdoing is driven out. And you can just imagine the sign, make Egypt great again, right? So, uh, but this is where Mary and, Joseph, Mary and Joseph go. They flee to Egypt and they're resting there. And then Matthew adds this little piece, right? He says, this was to fulfill what the prophet spoke, right? This is the, the words, out of Egypt, I call my son. Now he's quoting a verse, 
The verse he's quoting is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what's interesting about that passage is it means something completely different to the people of, of the Old Testament. The book of Hosea, this, it'll say this, out of Egypt I called my son, but then the rest of that passage is talking about Israel's rebellion against God how they move against God, how they rebel over and over and over. They go build idols against, or towards Baal. They, they turn their backs on God. God brings them out of Egypt, rescues them, and they just turn away from him. And uh, what, what's happening here, though, is Matthew says this is true, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he applies this to the person of Christ, saying, out of Egypt, I will call uh, my son. And so here we go. Let's continue in verse 16. This is part two of the story. So then Herod, who's the ruling guy, right? The, the king, the, the self-proclaimed king, the military uh, victor. He, he says, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the scene here uh, takes us back to the passage in the conversation with the wise men. These Persian high society, um, high class, like they're in the, the council of the king. They're the ones who actually crown the kings of Persia. They, they show up to Herod and Herod kind of makes like a, a sideways deal with them. He says, well, bring, bring them in and I, and I can like tell me where the kid is and I'll go worship him. But what we know about Herod is actually that's not the case. And as the wise men are, like as, um, as Joseph is warned that Herod's gonna kill him, that's, that's his plan. Herod is uh, an interesting character that you'll see in history because his, his reign started in a really good way. He came onto the scene as this massive military uh, genius, and having lots of victories in battle. He re was renovating the temple. He built the port of Caesarea. Uh, he built this, this fortress called Masada that you can go to in the Holy Land, right? It's on top of this hill. You, he, he is seen as like this really good king for a time, and people are pretty happy that he's in charge of the region. As time goes on, Herod actually becomes really, 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 really paranoid as power corrupts and as, as the human heart takes over. And what, what you see is Herod begins to kill anyone who looks like might be a threat. So he kills members of his family. He kills lots of his wives. He kills uh, sons, in fact, right? And in this case, there's a new king in the area. Well, I'm going to kill him too. And so he, he puts out the order and he puts together this plan. He says, I've been deceived by these wise men. And he, he kind of ascertains and figures out, okay, it's, it's probably within these two years. The kid, he can't be any older than two. So just kill everyone underneath the age of two. And so that's what happens. Now, if you're a scholar in here and you're a historian, you would say, well, Daniel, um, we looked all the way through history and we have never found any sort of reports of any children being killed in Bethlehem. And this is kind of a, an issue, right? Like, okay, well, the Bible is saying that they moved through and killed all these children. Why are there no reports of this actually happening uh, in history? W most scholars will point to the fact that the reason you don't see this is because uh, this type of behavior by Herod, um, it was so common that it just got to the point where people didn't even write it down anymore. 
Like, like before this, he killed a bunch of judges. Before that, he killed a bunch of Jewish leaders. Then he kills children in that town. He kills a bunch of people. And then he kills the kids in Bethlehem. And then before you can even mourn and weep, he kills more people. It's over and over and over again to the fact that Herod's reign is so tyrannical and there's so many people being killed by him that it just kind of, it's not worth mentioning because the people in that area knew. They, they would not doubt that this sort of thing's happening. They, they know the stories. They have family members who have been killed under the reign of Herod. So Herod does this. He goes and kills um, these people here. And so, again, this is to, to fulfill what the prophets spoke. As Matthew, right, he's crafting this thing. He draws your attention here. Second one, he says this. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, he's quoting a verse from Jeremiah. And in this story, in this, in this passage of scripture, Jeremiah, he's using the character of Rachel, who is famous for her pain and, and for her weeping. He's using her to, to show how much pain Israel is in. He's saying, you, you know the pain Rachel went through. Uh, I'm using this to describe this scene, the weeping, loud lamentation, weeping for her children, and, and she will not be comforted because the children are no more. And, and to the Jewish audience, this would have just brought back so much. They knew exactly what was being talked about here. That there's just this pain that cannot be cured. It's, there's just terror and, and people are just so broken in the land. So here we go. Verse 19. This is part three of the story, right? The third section. It's kind of like a time jump here. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child so we know that actually Jesus is not, no longer a baby, probably like a toddler, little toddler Jesus running around. Um, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, right? So they replaced one tyrannical guy and here's another guy who seems just as tyrannical. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee where he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So time goes by, right? Hiding in Egypt, resting, waiting. Like, what do we do next? Lord comes into him in a dream and says, um, Herod's dead, you can go back to your, your home. And so he goes back there, but then realizes this is just not even safe either. Um, I'm going to move a little bit further out, right? He moves to Yarrow. Do you know anyone know where Yarrow is, <laughs> right? If you know where Yarrow is, that's, it's a tiny little town on the way to Chilliwack, kind of on the way to Cultus Lake. You, you, you just drive right through it and you, you'd be like, oh, there's a few homes here and we're back in the forest, right? It's really kind of the boonies, the backwater area. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'd be like, well, Daniel, I have another critique here. Because every single time you quote a verse and then uh, you explain what the verse is. But in this one, the, the Matthew, the writer, actually doesn't quote a verse. So what's the deal? Why are you not quoting a verse here? What Matthew's doing is he's not necessarily quoting a verse, but he's referencing an idea that was really common to the, to the people of that time uh, and of what the prophets did speak. So he's telling the truth. And let's just unpack it a little bit. There's a story in John 
chapter one, verse 43, just when Jesus is now kind of uh, on the scene and he begins to tell disciples, he says, follow me, follow me. And he's inviting people to follow him, right? So in John chapter one, verse 43, it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, right? This is adult Jesus in his ministry. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he, he's aware uh, that there's prophets talking about this Messiah. He's aware of kind of the buzz that's going on, the fact that this guy, he's claiming to be the Messiah. And, so, and he just said, follow me. So he, he knows what the guy is claiming to. This is deeply in the mind of, of, of Jewish culture. They're, they're kind of awaiting this Messiah to come. And so he, um, the son of Joseph, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Kind of begging the question of like, I thought our king, this Messiah king was going to come from Jerusalem or something like that, like some big, big town, right? Like nobody comes from Yero. What is, can anything good come from Yero? Is kind of his idea, right? It's kind of a jab, but it's, it's, it's how he feels about it. And he says, well, come and see, Philip said to him. There's another verse here that they would be familiar with. And this is from Isaiah 53, now, Isaiah 53 is a super interesting passage. On your own time, go find it because the writer Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus is even on the scene, basically describes perfectly the suffering Messiah. And he describes what Jesus would be like. Now, when he's describing this, uh, do, it doesn't make an indication that he knows the name of Jesus. Like he, he can picture him in his mind. He's just, he's writing down what the Lord is speaking to him. And he's prophetically bringing forth what this Messiah would be like. Listen to what he reads here. And, th and this is something that the people would be very familiar with. In Isaiah 53, verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Right? There's nothing about him that said that's a king. There, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The idea here being people are, are well aware that um, there's a Messiah coming, but it's not quite in the way that they expect. They, they, they are, they're thinking, wait a minute, this, this guy's coming from low standing. I thought he was going to come from Jerusalem. But as we see Isaiah, right. He's describing Jesus coming from a low place. And so Matthew is right. He does come from a backwater place. It's this idea that fulfills what the prophets spoke about. And that's more, most, what most scholars say he's referencing is that Isaiah passage. So here you go. That's the end credits, right? The end of the prequels. Star Wars episode three is done. And then it would move now into um, the story of Jesus' ministry. There's only like another story where he's a little bit older. He's in the temple right? Uh, but then it's most of the time it's John the Baptist and now moving into the ministry of Christ. So we have this backstory here. And as we come to the end of the backstory, I just have two applications for us now. The first one is this. This story is God's story. This, this is God's story. And you, you gain a real appreciation of God's story uh, when you look at the writing of Matthew and how he's trying to tie in all of these different elements that are happening. Right? What is the point of this text? And, and more importantly, right, the question you're asking is, like, well, who is the child? Okay, If you're reading this for the first time, what's the point? What is this thing trying to say? Who is the child? Everything Matthew's trying to say is he's saying, this child's the king. 
And I'll prove it to you by showing you the story of God and how these things are actually kind of paralleling each other. They're not exact, but they're similar. There's a, a very famous uh, interview with the director of Star Wars, since we're talking about Star Wars. He, uh, he basically said, hey, when I made the first uh, four, five, six, and I went back and made one, two, three, he said, uh, I want to make them kind of similar. He said, it's intentional. They're supposed to be like poetry where they, they, they follow similar themes and similar ups and downs as, as like father, like son. And this is kind of how Matthew, remember, he's crafting how he wants you to understand this. He's, he, he's showing these ups and downs happening. For example, what are some of the ones that we see? Well, we see a character in the book of Genesis, right? A person named Joseph receiving dreams. And in this book, we see uh, Joseph, Jesus' dad, receiving dreams. Both of these Josephs end up going to Egypt, right? In Genesis, they, Joseph ends up in Egypt. Here, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And then in Egypt, uh, God brings his people out, right? In Exodus, he brings them out through the, he defeats Pharaoh and brings them through the Red Sea to the promised land. Here, God brings uh, Jesus, right? The true Israel, the, 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 the Messiah King out of Egypt. And, and that's intentional, Matthew's drawing this, the fact that God is working his story here in, in, in this, and he's working through man's redemption. Now, there's another interesting point that I want to bring up because I didn't read the whole Jeremiah verse to you with, with uh, Rachel's weeping in the morning and, and, and people being in utter distress. But what you find is uh, in Jeremiah 31, verse 16 and 17, just after the verse I read, there was this horrific event that happened where the children had been killed. But then God brings goodness out of it. Listen to this. He says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Do you kind of notice the parallels there? Something horrific happens uh, and then God brings goodness and justice and, and prosperity to his people, right? Brings salvation. Here we see all the children in Bethlehem killed. Horrific incident. But then through it, we see the Messiah King who will be the redemption to make everything right. Again, this is the, the stories are like this. This is intentional. This is happening for a reason and for a purpose. And John Calvin, he, he writes it like this. He says, such was the resemblance between the former calamity with uh, which the tribe of Benjamin had sustained and the second calamity, which is recorded here. Both were a prelude of the salvation that was shortly to arrive. All this to say is that through this darkness, through this, this horrific thing that happened with Herod, salvation is coming. And what Matthew wants you to know is he's saying, the king is here. You've seen the patterns where it, it's bad and God brings his people out. And it's bad and God brings his, he says, this is bad right now. And here comes salvation. Here comes the king. Are you ready for it? Here's the second point then. This king is a personal king. And what I mean by a, this king being a personal king is he's, he's a king over us. And so similar to what uh, Matt had mentioned on Christmas Eve about um, ourselves wanting to be kings, right? This, I want to I press into that a little bit as well. That 
we often view ourselves as kings as well. Did you notice in the story uh, what made Herod so mad? Is in the passage before when the wise men come and they say, hey, we're coming to worship the new king. Herod is basically like, I th- um, guys, I'm the king of the Jews. You understand that, right? Uh, if you had any sort of sense, you'd be here worshiping me. To Herod, who's the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the king here. What we begin to see is that Herod, his, his, um, his view is that he's the one in control here. And what we, if we're intellectually honest with ourselves, even though we might be Christians, even though we've been called from death to life because we live in a sinful, broken world and we are born in sin, each and every one of us has a little bit of Herod in us. Is there a little bit of Herod in you today? There is. There's a little bit of Herod in me. Every moment as Christians, we we are on our path of of growing and being sanctified, becoming more like Christ. But at every moment, there's moments where a little bit of Herod appears. And when that one goes, here's another little spot where there's a little bit of Herod, where we want to have personal sovereignty over our own lives. We live in an enlightenment era, right? We're, we're past, the, the, the Bible is old, right? Why would we live? We can understand things. We understand the ways of science. We should determine how things are. We know better than God knows. And what's interesting about this is when we, are, we become Christians, even if, if when you become a Christian, right? There's gonna be things where the Bible comes at you and it's, and it's basically going to say, you can't live your, your life like this anymore. And it's going to cause us to go, wait a minute. And, and there's a conflict there because our nature knows something else. But we are called to become more like the kingdom of God. So let me give you an illustration. Imagine that after the service, you're like, wow, Daniel, you, like, you, did, you, know, you did a great job. You had to preach three of these things. You must be really hungry. Why don't you come over uh, and, and come to my house for lunch, right? And I'd be like, oh, great. That'd be, you know, that'd be so fun. So uh, imagine I go to your house and I stand at the front door, I knock, right? And you kind of open the door a little bit. It's cracked like this. And you say, hey, Daniel, so great to have you here. Don't you love my place? It's awesome, right? Are you hungry? Sure, yeah, I'm hungry. Okay. <laughs> well, Daniel, it's been great having you here. And you shut the door, right? Well, you didn't let me in. So when you become a Christian, what this is, is actually God has opened the door and he's inviting you inside the house. You walk in. What happens when we become Christians, and even if you've been a Christian for a long time, oftentimes we sit in the living room and we say, I hate that plant. That is the worst, that is the ugliest plant. Who would ever put that there? And so we kind of take that plant, we move it over there. Why would they put the autumn in there? And so we moved, I don't like how this room is. And so uh, we kind of want to rearrange this. So imagine I'm in your living room rearranging all your stuff, right? You've, you've got to, it looks together and there's reasons why you have things everywhere, right? You can walk in, what would you say? You say, what are you doing, Daniel? Like, who do you think you are? And so imagine now you're going through and you're, you're rearranging all the stuff. I go walking into the kitchen and say, what were you making? This is horrible, right? And I start changing your recipe. I start doing it the way I see fit. You come in, what would you say? Like, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are changing all this? This is my my house. I know what's best. 
I know how to prepare this meal the best. I know that the, these things in my house are arranged a certain way. And so it is when we become Christians that we often, uh, in our Christian life, we'll sit in the living room. We want to change things because our personal sovereignty is the thing that we tend to want and worship. We want to be the ones in charge. And this is something that is common, uh, especially in our day to day. There's a very famous poem written by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. They made a movie about it with rugby uh, with um, Morgan Freeman, right? He's playing Nelson Mandela. It was one of Nelson Mandela's famous poems or favorite poems. The poem goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of fears finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I, here we go, I am the master of my fate. I am and the captain of my soul, right? This poem was written by Henley when he was spending time in prison and basically like, are going through a really, really difficult time. And he came out the other side. He says, I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate, captain of my soul. We take this, and this is a message that today, uh, you watch anything Disney, you watch anything on, on television. This is the, the narrative of our culture. You're in charge. So why would you answer to a God? Who, who's the king? I'm the king. There's an atheist philosopher named Thomas Nagel. He writes it like this. He has an interesting quote. He says, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I'm speaking from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally, I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. What I really appreciate about this quote by Nagel is he's being intellectually honest. He's just describing it how it is. He says, look, if there's a God, that means he can say things about my life. If there's a designer and he's designed me to live a certain way, that means he has authority over my life. And I don't want to live under that authority, so I choose not to believe that. Who's the king? I'm the king of my life. Every single one of us has this little box of personal sovereignty that we, we have. We don't let, want to let anyone in, right? We will fight against people trying to tell us what to do in our lives, because we're the ones in charge. Each one of us views us as kings. Are you a king? Do you view yourself as, as the king, as the queen of your life, the one in charge? There's a moment when you come to Christ where you actually have to open it up and Christ comes and, and the Lord will now dwell with you. And he invites you to say, follow me. So if you're a Christian here today, that's, that's the tension you now live in is your personal sovereignty now bows to the sovereignty of the true king. So when you look at the story of Christmas, as you're looking now at this entire story, the, the true king who is Christ, the question is, what do you do with this king? Do you bow to the king? Or do you walk away from the king? 
That's the question. And your entire eternity rests in what you do with that question. What do you do with the person of Christ? Will you follow him or will you go your own way? And if you choose to go your own way, maybe you have, how's that going for you? Because I know in my own life, when I try and do that, I'm a pretty lousy king. And I look at my circumstances and I find myself in a spiral downwards. Who's the king? Are you? Or is Christ your king? When we bow to Christ as our king, it means that he has rule over us. And as Christians, we are called to obey this king. Now, this isn't a tyrannical king. When we follow Jesus, this is actually a true and a good king. You need this king. His name is faithful and true, and you must stand before him. You have to stand before that king. There's an interesting verse that comes uh, in the beginning. I think it's verse 19. It's just three words, right? Then Herod died. The king who's king over the whole region, he dies and his kingdom is, is scattered and he's, he's gone. Every one of our kingdoms will fall. If you make this yourself the king or the queen of your life, it will fall. And then you're gonna go and stand before the true king and you're gonna look him in the eye what will your response be in that moment? What you do in this life will actually influence what happens there. And so you might say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do all I can now to, to, to prove myself to this king, right? Because this is, a, this is a good king, so I'm gonna work harder. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna lie less, right? I'm actually gonna be really honest with all these things. I'm gonna be caring. I'm gonna sacrifice myself. I'm gonna give more money. I'm gonna do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you're gonna stand before that king and it won't be enough. Because your lives are a disaster. My life is a disaster. Before the true, holy king, we are a complete mess. We will never be able to live like that. But there's one who did live that life. Jesus lived that life for us. The true king who came as a child, a human child. He's the God man, 100% God, 100%, 100% man, 200%, right? Jesus now is, he's the one who lived that perfect life. He is the one who um, lived this life that we ought to live. And because uh, he lived that life and he died for our sins, we can now follow him and boldly enter into the kingdom. Under Jesus' rule, there will be no more evil, no more murder, no more fear, no more running away. You don't have to flee anywhere. But you can walk with him in the kingdom. But again, this is so difficult because each one of us has a little bit of Herod in us. Why can we live in freedom? Why can we actually to escape Herod? Why can we get rid of this and actually put to death little Herods in our life as we pursue Christ? Well, I'll pick up where Isaiah left off. He says, because he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We, we deserve what he got. When we stand for that king, we, we deserve what, what he got. And with his own wounds, 
we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. You ever watch sheep? They just wander and they go away, right? They go astray all the time. Each one of us does this. Before Christ, even when we follow him, we tend to go astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions so that we don't have to be Herod. So that we can be free of Herod. We don't have to have little Herods. We, can, we are now free from sin. We are no longer bondage. We're not slaves to it anymore. We don't have to listen to that little voice. Because of Christ, because of his saving, sanctifying work on the cross, we can now follow him in a trajectory uh, that is obedience and repentance. Coming to him saying, Lord, I have failed. And I, re- and I believe again. And I, I'm, forgive me for my sins. Have mercy on me, Lord. And we do it again and again and again because it was his work that did it, not ours. Because of his transgressions, we don't need to be Herod. We can be free. Let me pray for us. Father, as we think about this passage and we think about our lives, uh, we come to you in a posture of repentance because we, we see in us a little bit of Herod. Lord, we, we tend to go astray. We tend to wander from you. Lord, we don't want you to have rule over our lives, but we come here and we're gathered here today because um, we need you to rule over our lives. We want that. We want to walk in your way. And so, Father, find us faithful. Forgive us of our sins. And would we worship you now in response to the goodness that you've shown us and the mercy and the grace of what you did show us and what you did on the cross. Thank you for your grand story. And it's an honor for us to be in it. And Lord, we look forward to the final chapter of that story where you come again. And come soon, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And everyone said, amen.